Thank you so very much. That was so very kind, and I am so very undeserving. Thank you. And for those that are tuning in, watching, wondering what just happened, I'm wondering the same thing right now. <laughs> I am utterly clueless, but that tends to be my nature. I'd love for you to take your Bibles now and join with me to Psalm 22. We're going to be looking at verse 1 down through verse 21 together. It's the first of two parts of Psalm 22. Let me just add that um, I'll be adding a little more perspective in terms of response tonight in the Body Life Update and giving thanks to all the various stakeholders uh, that have involved in these 25 years together, including, of course, my family who I think, by and large, are, are with us here. Yeah, yeah, granddaughter waving at me right now. <laughs> Another granddaughter sleeping right now. Mm -hmm. A daughter who just got off a 12-hour shift from 7 at night till 7 in the morning in the ICU, I believe, yeah. And I'm impressed, thank you. Psalm 22, verse 1, down through verse 21 is what we're covering. I think for the sake of time, I'll read down through verse 5. Get our sense of traction here. To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I, I find no rest. Notice now the transition. Uh, he, he's crying out, he's calling out, he, he, he doesn't have answers to the big issues, the crises that he's experiencing at this point. What I want you to see at this point is that there is a dramatic transition that's occurring. There is what I'll now call self-counsel, where he's going to, instead of be inwardly focused, he will be upwardly focused. Watch what happens after one and two. Because now in verse three, he says, yet you, despite all that's going wrong, yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. Did you sense the shift from me to you? That's what we're going to be doing this morning as we look to our Lord now in prayer. And thank you, we do, Father, we do thank you for these 25 years. For some, it's probably been about 25 days since they started attending. Uh, 25 weeks, but 25 years. It is all my privilege. Thank you, Father, for <clears throat> being the God who is sovereign, the God who guides, the God who directs the one who sent Jesus Christ to die for our sins, raised him from the grave. And we are utterly astounded that poetically and prophetically now, this passage of scripture that we're taking in two parts over these two Sundays, 
points us toward the cross of Jesus Christ. So, Father, these moments are important. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. As again, our Father, we've come here to see Jesus and him only. And we're praying these things to again now in, in Jesus' name. Amen. He was about to hear the gospel presented to him, Mahatma Gandhi, when some Christian missionaries spending time with him heard him ask them to sing one of their favorite songs about Christianity. And which one, they asked. And he responded, well, sing for me the one that best expresses just what it is you believe about your Jesus. Well, it took them a moment. But after a moment or so, they decided together and began to sing, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross which we have heard in both traditional and contemporary settings. They made the right choice. For you see, there is something significant about taking the song that values and encapsulates just what you believe and use it as an offering to your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And that this morning is what we're exploring here. Because what you'll find now is that David, roughly a thousand years before Jesus Christ, hit the soil in Palestine with his sandals, making the way to the cross. What we see is that not only poetically, but prophetically now, there are some extraordinary statements made in this psalm that have direct bearing upon the work of Christ for you and for me. Let's dig in. I want to draw out three significant observations here that are found here in these verses. And the first comes out of verse 1 down through verse 5. There's you and I as we reflect upon this psalm and how this psalm points towards Christ's cross this morning. Why don't you begin with me by noting in verses 1 through 5 what we'll call the relational distance being described. Question, have you ever had a time where it seemed like God was so far away? Life was coming apart, and you're wondering just, where are you, God? In verse 1, you will find these words uttered by David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And before God can break in with an answer, he's got another question for God. Why are you so far from saying from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, I find no rest. What do we do with that? I want you to begin with me by noticing that, well, let me just simply say that in the Hebrew, the accent is upon the my. 
we've had semi-blasphemous statements where people will say, in essence, my God, in, in, in response to some, something going on in their lives. Don't want you to be impulsive with your words. Want you to be reflective with your words. There's a difference. And here now, the accent is upon the first of the two words. My God, you see, because even in the midst of the distancing that he is feeling, he has got a relationship with God that he is embracing. What you and I have to do as well in our own life experiences. Now David, a thousand years before Jesus Christ, would reflect upon these words and verbalize them on that cross. And David has got his own sense of crisis. From what we can tell in the first 21 verses, it seems as though Israel is under siege and he is the king. He's got decisions to make. And a leader, over the course of time, if this is in the second part of his leadership, can begin to experience what we'll call decision-making fatigue. Decision-making fatigue. And maybe some of you have experienced that in your workplace experiences and so forth. Decision-making fatigue. And where do I go from here? He's going to go to God. But what I want you to see furthermore is that it is not an L-O-R-D capitalized statement here. No. It's G, big G, but then small O-D. More of a generic name. You would have thought that because he said my, he would have then said Lord, capital L-O-R-D, which is the English word for Yahweh in the Hebrew, the covenantal relational name for God. But no, at this point, what we see is that he is, reviewing, he is revealing himself in a different form to God. And as he does so, what stands out to me is that this particular passage is going to be quoted on the cross of Jesus Christ by Jesus. Now, bear in mind that the first and the last statements by Jesus on that cross began with the idea of Father, not my God. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. First statement on the cross. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Last statement on the cross. Right when you think you've got embraced the entire of the fatherhood matter in this crucifixion experience, the fourth statement was, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's Jesus doing? He is memorized, he is personalized, and now in the crisis of the moment, he is verbalized. It's for others to hear. And for those who have ears to hear and know the scriptures well, they know he's quoting scripture. They know that what he is doing at this point is that he is drawing out from the crises that David had experienced a thousand years before and now the ultimate David on that cross with the words King of the Jews over his head is in his own crises moment verbalizing scripture. There is a lesson here. 
Jesus took the passages of the Older Testament and related them to the experiences he was confronting in his own cultural moments. So should we. I don't know what you're going through right now, but your own personal life, Jesus used scripture to guide him through the crisis that he was experiencing. 1917, Cecil B. DeMille, he's produced the film Joan the Woman. It's his first epic. Took the film to New York for the censors to approve, which they would do in that day and age. Well, after the screening, there was a pastor who was in the group said he didn't find anything offensive there in what had just been, been produced. But a woman on the censor board disagreed. And there was one thing she said had to be deleted. What's that? DeMille asked. It's the line she said where Joan says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? DeMille asked her if she knew who had first spoken the line. The woman stonewalled, said she didn't know it made no difference. She said it means that God would forsake someone, and that has to come out. Well, it didn't. And on the cross of Jesus Christ, the line didn't come out. He used the line. And now what we see is that there is what I will call oscillation. As the pendulum swings back and forth from David to the ultimate David, Jesus. Back and forth. Poetically from the lips of David, but prophetically pointing towards the ultimate David, Jesus Christ. This is then a judicial statement. Not a paternal statement. Not my Father, but my God. It's as if on that cross, Jesus was saying in the midst of his experience with the fatherhood of the sovereign God, there is a judicial aspect here where sin, though, is not found within Christ. Our sin is placed upon Christ. So now he is speaking to the judge of the cosmos and in judicial terms saying, my God, yet he is relationally connected to his sovereign judge. My God, rhetorically, why have you forsaken me? But then, back to David. Why are you so far from from saving me from the words of my groaning. And maybe this morning, some of us come here and subtly, quietly, internally, you're groaning. And you're wearied. And you need guidance. I penned some thoughts over the course of these days as I again was exploring the Hebrew in this passage of scripture. Trust him. Even when God seems distant. Furthermore, trust him. Even when answers seem hidden. David's got questions. 
David wants answers. You've got questions. You most likely want answers. On that cross, Jesus would pose this question. God would respond, not verbally, but physically, when three days later Jesus was raised from the grave. But there was a deafening silence from the heavens over the course of those three days that would have the disciples utterly perplexed as to where is God? What's God doing? We thought we had put our faith and trust in one who was to be king of the Jews, and he is. But he's king on God's terms, not human terms. Which means not only are we to trust the answers God gives, the ones revealed, We're to trust the God who has answers, those which are concealed, you see. So now you pull those thoughts together. Am I putting my faith and trust in answers or am I putting my faith and trust in God who has answers? God will give us sufficient information. Rarely does God give exhaustive information with regard to what you're going through but he gives you sufficient grace, your daily bread. Tomorrow's bread is for tomorrow. Meanwhile, you're up to verse three. At this point, he's got to recalibrate. He's got to get his GPS going. He's going to have to, rather than internalize, he is going to have to now go vertical. And so what we find here is that he says, yet you. He is not looking out over all the mockers around him, David is not, but rather he is now looking upward. Upward, you are holy. And so he seizes upon one of the extraordinary attributes of God at this point and the irony of this. Holiness has to do with being separate from Now, the reality is, in his emotionally charged state of mind, it seems as though God is distant from, pertaining to the answers David is seeking. What now David is doing theologically is reorienting his mind to say, God is distant from the sin that David is observing. Big difference. He's got it right. He's got a holy God on his hands. Yet you, yet you are to blame? No. Rather, yet you, you are holy. Enthroned on the praises of Israel. Now this is the third of five kingship psalms, all lined up in a row, you see, and they're built like a pyramid, where Psalm 20 and Psalm 21 are moving upwards till you get to the pinnacle, Psalm 22, where you will find, as we're going to see next week in the second portion of the psalm, where the lament turns to thanksgiving, it's all lined up, you see, leading into Thanksgiving week, that kingship is again noted from the king's lips, David. But now, I want you to see here the extraordinary usage of the idea of trust. You find it in verses 4 and 5. And what he will do now, before he can get to his own personal trust, he needs some help. 
He who walks in the company of the wise grows wise. One of my favorite passages in all the Bible. And so he's going to go back and he's going to do a history lesson for himself. In verse 4, in you our fathers trusted. When your trust begins to weaken, go back in time and look at how all great leaders in the faith demonstrated trust in the midst of crisis. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, he reemphasizes. You delivered them, which is what he's looking for. So if he's not got answers in the present, he can see that there were answers in the past when it came to deliverance. And so should you, and so should I, because Jesus, I see, there was a lapse of time between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And there's lapse of time when it comes to the answers we're seeking and the everyday dilemmas and crises of life. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted. And were not, you see, put to shame. From the magazine Fast Company. Chess master, sought after mentor, Bruce Rondo Feeney talks about how he works with his students where he states that lessons are learned in silence. Pantofini writes, I listen to other teachers and they're always talking. I let my chess students think. If I do ask a question and I don't get the right answer, I'll rephrase the question and wait. I never give the answer. Most of us really don't appreciate the power of silence. Some of the most effective communication between student and teacher, between master players, takes place during silent periods. Because it's in the silence of the my God, my God cries of life where you and I gain insights into that which you and I didn't have before. And in the questions, my God, my God of life, you and I discover depths of relationships with God that we never experienced before, you see. There's your one through five. And as we explore that together, ponder those moments of the feelings of relational distance. I've had to counsel people over the course of this week about this. As we reflect upon how this psalm points toward Christ's cross, utterly amazing, a thousand years prior, notice with me the relational distance being described and how Jesus used it judicially, yet relationally. Now you're on to the second observation of 6 down through verse 11, where not only the relational distance being described in 1 through 5, but now the verbal abuse being expressed in 6 through 11. And you say, Gary, 
I've been through times where maybe in various relationships I've experienced verbal abuse in the home, at work. What can I use from this? Dig in. Notice with me how this begins to unfold in your eye, before your very eyes in verse, in verse 6. Notice that the psalmist at this point cries out, but I am a worm and not a man. And notice that Jesus didn't use that on the cross. So now what he's doing is saying, in essence, and this is how I feel in light of the accusers that I face. He's belittling himself. You ever done that? Now, once you've worked through the issue of trust repeatedly emphasized in 3, 4, and 5 is the antidote to what the cry was all about in 1 through 2. Once you've established and reframed your trust, now begin to think through your identity. He says, but I'm a whim, not a man. David's grappling with his own self-nature. Sitting with a friend of mine who's a football coach prior time at Liberty out in Virginia, now a coach, football coach down south. We're talking about what does it mean to be able to establish your identity in Christ as a football player. He did football, I did baseball. My sport's better than his, but so be it. John 1.12, I am God's child. John 15, 15, I'm Christ's friend. Matthew 5, 13, 14, I'm the salt of the earth. John 15, verse 1, I'm a branch of the true vine. Did you notice the I am statements there? What I want you to do is to allow that idea, having put faith and trust in Christ, to help you to reorganize your thought processes about your identity in Christ. Okay? Jesus died for you. But with that crucifixion, when you and I die with him, so to speak, metaphorically, that's identification. Dying to sin as he died for sin. You pull that together and there's now your counseling moment for David when he says, but I'm a worm, not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who seek me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He's struggling. He's talking about the verbal abuse that They've been delivering, throwing out, thrusting his way. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Did you notice how the trust issue now moves from him looking at, at forerunners and, and pondering their trust to now the mockers around him, and they are mocking his trust. He's beginning perhaps to even wonder, What's my trust level like in relationship to my sovereign God? She calls. We talk. 
It began with just one drink and then two drinks and three drinks. But now the home is encompassed in alcoholism. There wasn't verbal abuse in the start of the relationship. There's continual abuse now within the relationship. She never saw it then. She fully experiences it now. Gary, what do I do? I didn't see this one coming. She's struggling with herself, with her identity. She loves Jesus Christ as her Lord and Savior. She's belittling herself because in his alcoholic state, he's belittling her. I read to her that this forerunner, this one who was the one that would lead to the ultimate David, would say, but I'm a woman, not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Now they're even mocking his faith in, in God. He trusts in the Lord. Notice the quote marks. It's them talking, not him. He trusts in the Lord, they're saying. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Where do you go with this? You go to the cross. You begin to ponder just what was shared there. You begin to think through what was stated there. The soldiers mocked him, took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, gathered the whole battalion before him, Matthew tells us in chapter 27, stripped him, put a scarlet robe on him, twisting together a crown of thorns, put it on his head, put a reed on his right hand, kneeling before him. They mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, you see. He takes a deep breath. She takes a deep breath over the phone. I take a deep breath as once again I read verse 7. All who see me mock me, David said. Do you hear that, I ask her? They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. It's as if the mocker now is belittling his faith. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. But now, what happens? Once again, there's a yet you. I want you to connect verse 3. Would you do that with me? To verse 9, where he had questions, but he didn't have answers. That led to a yet you. Well, now there's mocking. What does he do in verse 9? Another yet you. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. Now he's looking back over the course of his life experience and seeing the, the fingerprints of the sovereign God on his day to day journey from the womb. Grace. Yet you made me trust you. God took the initiative. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. He's going back to what he learned in his youth. Uh, you, uh, was I cast from my birth in my mother's womb, you have been my God. Be not far from me. Self-counsel. Trouble's near. There is none to help. 
He's saying in verse 1, God's not near. In verse 11, trouble is near. And there's the weariness of life. It had been a stormy board meeting at a company. An executive was sitting at the table. Uh, Tough things said. One man, always highly expected, unusually wise, not impulsive with his words, had at that point said nothing throughout the entire proceedings. When suddenly one of the leaders in the argument turned to him and said, you haven't said a word. We would all like to hear your opinion about this matter. Love the response. After pausing, this executive said, I have discovered that there are many times when silence is an opinion. There's still silence. They're still mocking. They have heard the mocker's words. They haven't heard yet God's words. The relational distance being described, one through five, the verbal abuse being expressed here in verse six through 11. Lincoln, if I tried to read, much less answer all the criticisms made of me and all the attacks leveled against me, this office would have been closed for all other business. And yet, such a beloved president in our nation's history. A third, and a final opinion, and we'll pick it up next week, because we're spotting here in this psalm not only the relational distance being described in 1 through 5 and the verbal abuse being expressed in 6 through 11, but now finally, the physical sufferings being endured, starting in verse in verse 12 onward. Notice the, the terminology. <coughs> Notice the word usage. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me, and like a ravening and roaring lion, you say, God, I don't get it. How does that relate? When studying this time period that David was in, The terms that were being used here, such as strong bulls, lion, and so forth, were not labels placed upon fellow Jews. No. These were were labels, so to speak, placed upon military oppressors. In other words, prophetically, we're talking now about the Roman gods and how they were mistreating Jesus Christ. Poetically, yet prophetically, you are now seeing how time is coming together in the midst of this extraordinary psalm. You pick it up in verse 14. I'm poured out like water. And now I want you to go to that cross. And when the spear was thrust into Christ's side, and the blood and the water the separation thereof. I've read medical reports of how this is to be understood. Notice the orthopedic descriptions. My bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. 
My strength is dried up like a pot's hood. My tongue sticks to my jaws. And then you remember how uh, a bit of vinegar was offered to Jesus as he was dealing with the parched lip syndrome there in his crucifixion. You lay me in the dust of death. And again, still using terminology of Gentiles, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. Now, pause. This should move your heart. This was penned a thousand years before Jesus Christ's crucifixion. In a time period in which piercing of the skin and such was not to be found in military terms. They've pierced my hands and feet. You see, does that speak? A thousand years beforehand, the Romans were not even on the scene at this point. Empires up to this point didn't use crucifixion. This is forecasting. This is the reliability, the credibility, the inerrancy of God's word. God stands outside of time, yet God works within time as the eternal and the temporal converge. <coughs> Again, in orthopedic terms of 17, I can count all my bones. They stare at me and gloat over me. And then get this. Fast forward again now to the cross. Mary wincing as she's probably pondering the way in which that cloak she had made for Jesus at an earlier stage is now in the Roman, hands of Roman guards. They're dividing it up. But Mary, don't be surprised. You're the line of David. And in David, prophetically as well as poetically, say they divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots, which is exactly what happened at the cross. Promised a thousand years beforehand. What do you do with this? He moves from get you to but you. And notice he uses the covenantal name now for the sovereign one. No longer capital G, small letters, O-D, but rather capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Yahweh, covenantal, relational name. And here is now his self-counsel, but you, O Lord, do not be far off. He moves from question to exclamation. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Second exclamation. Deliver my soul from, my, from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. The dog, well, that's what Jews would use as a statement pertaining to Gentile oppressors and now applied in this case to the Roman, emperor, Roman forces that are at work around that cross of Christ. Save me from the mouth of the lion and now get this. Get this. Though future, he goes past tense. There's trust, there's faith, there's certainty. Because you read in verse 21 at the end, you have rescued me from the horns 
of the wild oxen. Peggy Noonan, gifted speech writer for presidents, gifted writer, penned the book, When Character Was King, tells us this story. About a time of a meeting between President George W. Bush and President Vladimir Putin of Russia. It was their first meeting. World leaders. Bush wanted to be sure that they were able to connect. He wanted to be able to look deep, he said, into the soul and character of Putin, not simply and have a political meeting. And so Bush brought up a story he had read about Putin. Some of us know the story. His mother had given him a Christian cross that Putin had blessed while in Jerusalem. And Bush was moved by that story. Putin told a story in response. He had taken to wearing the cross, Vladimir Putin. And one day had set it down in a house that he'd been visiting. And strangely in his mind, the house burned down. And all Putin could think about was his cross that was lost in the rubble. And he mentioned for a worker to come to him so he could help him look for the cross. And the worker walked over to Putin, stretched out his hand, and showed him the already recovered cross. Putin told Bush, quote, it was as if something meant for me to have the cross, unquote. To which President Bush responded, Mr. Putin, President Putin, that's what life is all about. It's the story of the cross. And for David, the song is the story. The story is the song to be continued. Let's stand together. And so, Father, we see now how the poetic and prophetic merge here, how the timeless and the timely connect here, and how on that cross, here we have a Savior who had so memorized, so personalized, and now takes the opportunity to verbalize. And in his own sense of suffering, we can only imagine what's going on in the minds of people close to the cross as they hear him quoting scripture. For anyone here today in any of these services or now watching online, whether it be today or days to come, weeks to come, and they're in, in crisis mode, help them verbalize what matters most. Let trust be revealed even in the midst of the hurt, and through it all, Father. This is a pastor now speaking. Crowd that person with your love. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.